Let's see. Hello. Uh, welcome to Adventures Among Ideas. Today, I'm continuing to talk about uh, the limits of pluralism debate. In my last video, I introduced the limits of pluralism debate, and I talked about Wayne Booth's vision of pluralistic criticism. Today, I'm going to talk about uh, M. H. Abrams. So Abrams' book, as I talked about before, Natural Supernaturalism, uh, kind of in a way started this whole debate. His book was the subject of a, a deconstructive review by J. Hillis Miller, uh, kind of a well-known literary critic of the 20th century, um, actually passed away last year, so he uh, was continued into the 21st century. Um, and the article I'm going to talk about here, um, Abrams responds directly to Miller, the parts of Miller's review. So briefly, Miller saw four problems with Abrams's, Abrams' book. So first of all, he said that he thought that Miller thought that Abrams sees too much continuity between the works he studies and previous works that influenced them. So in other words, Abrams asserts, asserts, too, uh, asserts too much of an identity between a translation and its source, for example, using uh, translation in a broad sense. So a work that's based on another work or kind of translates it into a new context or whatever. So uh, Miller thinks Abrams sees too much continuity or too much identity between a work and another work that it's based on. Uh, uh, the second criticism he has is that Abrams' view of how Romantic writers secularized the Western theological tradition is too simple. And uh, the third criticism he makes, Abrams holds a mimetic view of language. So uh, Miller, Abrams doesn't really hold a mimetic view of language, but um, Miller criticizes Abrams for holding a mimetic view of language, the idea that language mirrors reality. And Miller thinks this doesn't take into account the importance of the metaphorical origins of language. Uh, and then the last point, the fourth point, which is most important, the most important one for us, is that Abrams assumes that a text has a, a single meaning, which is more or less independent of the play of uh, relations, repetitions, and differentiations within the work itself, as this is how Miller describes. Um, what's going on with meaning, the play of relations, repetitions, and differentiations within the work itself. So Abrams doesn't take this into account. So again, these are Miller's interpretations of Abrams, uh, not mine. I think uh, these criticisms miss the mark to, to an extent that is not negligible, but I'm just going to focus on how Abrams responds to the fourth point about the meanings of texts. All right, so Abrams' paper in this official part of the limits of pluralism debate is called The Deconstructive Angel. Angel here, uh, the word angel is a reference to the angel in William, ba uh, William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. So in that work, in The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, Blake, William Blake, and an angel are going down into this cavern, and the angel shows Blake a vision of hell as an infinite abyss with a black sun and vast spiders and fiery tracks. Um, the angel then leaves Blake, apparently in hell, but as soon as the angel leaves, hell disappears also, and Blake finds himself just sitting on a pleasant, bake, blank, uh, <laughs> sitting on a pleasant bank beside a river by moonlight. 
listening to harp music. So transforms from hell back into kind of this pleasant riverside scene. The angel comes back and sees Blake enjoying himself by the river rather than in hell and asks Blake how he escaped. How did you escape from hell? And Blake answers, all that we saw was owing to your metaphysics. So the idea here is that Miller, and by implication all deconstructionists, uh, make certain uh, metaphysical assumptions about what a text really is. Uh, these assumptions transform the text into a kind of infinite abyss of reverberating meanings, the kind of image that you find in deconstruction. Uh, but from Abram's perspective, this is just a, a certain kind of game that deconstructionists play with certain kinds of texts, a game that follows certain rules or metaphysical assumptions. Uh, and deconstructionists don't always play this game. They don't play this game full time, however. So they don't um, always treat texts in this way in all situations. In other parts of their lives, deconstructionists uh, play by the rule that linguistic utterances have fairly straightforward unitary meanings. This is not something Abram says exactly, but we can assume that when a, de when a deconstructionist is reading a restaurant menu or following a set of directions to get to some destination, they're assuming a single obvious meaning. The infinite abyss of deconstructive meaning suddenly disappears in these kinds of situations um, as the infinite abyss of hell disappears in Blake's story when the angel disappears. All right, so now Abrams is also a kind of pluralist. He's, uh, he argued in an earlier paper that humanistic inquiry needs multiple perspectives to give us um, a vision of depth of some particular subject matter. This idea of vision of depth comes from another philosopher whose name I forgot to write down. Um, but it's by, by looking through multiple, multiple perspectives that we build up our understanding of the truth of a matter. All right, uh, but Abrams argues that deconstruct, uh, deconstruction makes the historical side of humanistic inquiry impossible. The basic materials of history, he points out, are written texts. Uh, if we want to say anything about the conditions of the past and what people in the past thought, we have to assume that the authors of the text were using the linguistic conventions of the time to say something determinable, that some, uh, something that can be determined, that we can determine the meaning of it. Uh, the historian needs to be able to get at what the author meant, as we commonly say. What did he mean by this? Or what did she mean? The historian then presents his or her interpretations of historical texts to the public, right? The historian writes a book and then pretend, uh, presents it to the public. Uh, the public, the reading public, then either confirms or disconfirms the historian's interpretations. So they might disagree, they might agree with how the historian interpreted some text. Did the historian make valid interpretations of the historical documents. Uh, but deconstruction, the argument goes, makes this whole thing impossible. <clears throat> and as it's often been pointed out that no really uh, substantial deconstructive histories, works of history, books, history books have been written. Maybe that's changed now, I don't know. But that's something that people used to remark upon, that there has been no um, history from a deconstructive point of view. Um, at least as we uh, come to expect works of history to be kind of uh, substantial, detailed, focusing on kind of the facts. Uh, and it makes sense. 
why there wouldn't be that kind of uh, deconstructive history. Anyway, moving on. Uh, before we see why Abrams believes that deconstruction makes historiography impossible, uh, we need to recognize that Miller was not a pragmatist. So in his review of Ab Abrams' uh, natural supernaturalism, Miller was not making pragmatic suggestions about how we might view reality in order to follow through on a certain kind of inquiry that might prove useful or interesting to us. Um, this does not seem to be the case. Miller appeared to be, unless you read him ironically or deconstructively, unless you deconstruct the deconstructionist, um, but he appears to be making claims about how things really are. And here's a few examples of that. So at the beginning of his review, Miller writes that metaphysics gets between the eye and a plain seeing of the object. Um, so that and that Abrams clinging metaphysical presuppositions obscure a clear vision of his historical subject matter. Uh, so these are Miller's statements here. And these statements seem to suggest that while poor Abrams is lost in distorting metaphysics, uh, Miller himself has a clear view of how things really are. So it seems to suggest that um, there's kind of this double standard that I talked about last week. So um, Miller thinks that um, Abrams is kind of, his vision is obscured by metaphysics, while Miller himself apparently does not have that problem. Uh, later on, uh, Miller says that Abrams' interpretation of Nietzsche is wrong, quote-unquote wrong. He then tries to correct this statement about Abrams being wrong. He kind of realizes he's committed a um, kind of a deconstructive faux pas. Um, and he, then he admits that Nietzsche, Nietzsche was himself trying to problematize our ideas of rightness and wrongness. So how can Abrams be wrong? Uh, so then he uh, instead says that Miller's interpretation is, quote, evidence of his will to power over the texts he reads. But then the reader might also wonder, isn't this also true of Miller's own interpretation of Nietzsche? Isn't he also giving evidence of his will to power over Nietzsche's texts? Uh, at least in the review, Miller doesn't address this um, point. So another thing um, that I'll mention, Miller will use without irony or qualification adverbs such as in fact. So we'll say in fact, this is the case. So for example, Miller says that while Abrams thinks that there is continuity between St. Augustine's Confessions, Word, Wordsworth's Prelude, and Proust's In Search of Lost Time, in fact, he says, in fact, both Proust and Wordworth turn Augustine's confessions upside down, repeat it in parity, hollow it out, manipulate it as a fictive pattern. So in other words, Miller sees not continuity, but subversion, and appears to believe that this is not just a pragmatically useful way of reading the texts, but a true way of reading the texts. At least this is the way he writes. So you get the point. Throughout his review, throughout Miller's review of Abrams, there's the implication that Abrams, the traditional historian, has the truth obscured to him by his metaphysics, while Miller, with his non-metaphysical deconstructionism, has direct access to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Uh, moving on to Abrams' response to Miller. Now, Miller argues that so Miller argues that a text never has a single meaning, but is they the crossroads of multiple ambiguous meanings. 
Uh, Abrams believes that yes, meaning is often equivocal and multiplex, so there's often many meanings that are possible, but we ought to be able to agree at least on the range of meanings that a text makes available, right? The range of meanings that a certain combination of words make available to us, and on whether those meanings are evidence or not for some historical narrative that we, we might want to tell. So in other words, Abrams doesn't claim that the texts he discusses in natural supernaturalism have only the meanings he gives to them, but that, uh, that they have at least, at least those meanings, whatever else they might mean. So we call this a core of determinate meaning. So at least they have this meaning. Um, well, there's meaning surrounding the core, right? There's the various meanings available. There's a kind of a core of determinate meanings, but you can take some of these meanings um, and build your history out of that. And you can be pretty sure that the text at least means those things, but they um, might mean other things as well. Uh, but the main part of Abram's article, The Deconstructive Angel, is not about, not really about defending his own practice, but about showing how deconstruction rests on metaphysical assumptions of its own. So Abrams is not the only metaphysician here. He wants to say deconstructionists are metaphysicians as well. Uh, Abrams gives a useful summary, actually, of Derrida's work here, drawing on the original French texts. And uh, much of uh, Derrida's work was not translated at this time. This was back, in, of course, in the 1970s, when Derrida was just becoming known in the English-speaking world. Uh, Abrams does not mention this, but I find it useful to remember that Derrida cut his teeth on Husserlian phenomenology, so the, uh, kind of the philosophy of Edmund Husserl. Um, one of the key techniques of phenomenology is phenomenological bracketing, also known as phenomenological reduction, uh, transcendental reduction, uh, phenomenological epoche, E-P-O-C-H-E, it comes from a Greek word. Uh, but the idea here is to set aside your concern for the reality, the actual reality of some phenomenon, some object of your perception or possible object of perception, and just focus on your experience of it, on the experience of this phenomenon. So you're not worried about the history or the really the true nature of some object. You kind of bracket those things aside. Um, you're just giving your attention to the subjective experience of the object and focusing on your experience. Uh, in literary criticism, so what is the object in literary criticism that you would be looking at your experience of? So the objects uh, in literary criticism apparently are the black marks on white paper. This is something Derrida focuses on, these black marks on kind of white paper, the blacks on blanks, as we say. Uh, looking at these blacks on blanks, we bracket. So in uh, deconstruction, kind of this phenomenological deconstruction, we bracket the author. We kind of shut that out or any kind of writerly intention. We bracket those things. We don't focus on, we don't kind of speculate about that. We're not interested in how or why these marks appeared. Only um, We're only uh, interested in their appearance, uh, in the play of meaning that their appearance makes possible. Sorry. Yeah. So we're not interested in um how or why they appeared we're just interested in the the play of meanings their experience makes possible kind of our experience uh um, experience of the the shifting meanings that these words make possible for us 
Um, of course, if we follow these rules that Derrida gives us, then the text will appear to have no determinable, determinable meaning because it's cut off from its historical context. It's cut off from its history, from the people who used these words to accomplish something in their own lifetime, whether as writers or as readers or whatever. Um, out of some, outside of some context of use, I would say, language has no definite reference to anything. So once you take it out of its context, like totally shut off your thoughts about what that context, uh, context might have been, there's no clear reference to anything. So the meaning of a text will seem to be unstable, always deferred, to use Derrida's word, um, always yet to be determined. So it's deferred, it's not there yet. And I like this summary by Abrams. Hopefully it's not too dense or anything, but it gives you a, a good kind of picture of uh, deconstruction. So Abrams writes, What Derrida's conclusion comes to is that no sign or chain of signs can have a determinate meaning. But it seems to me that Derrida reaches this conclusion by a process which, in its own way, is no less dependent on an origin, ground, and end, and which is no less remorselessly teleological than the most rigorous of the metaphysical systems that he uses his conclusions to deconstruct. His origin and ground are his graphocentric premises. These graphocentric premises are the focus, total focus on these blacks on blanks. But his origin and ground are his graphocentric premises, the closed chamber of texts for which he invites us to abandon our ordinary realm of experience in speaking, hearing, reading, and understanding language. And from such a beginning we move to a foregone conclusion. For Derrida's chamber of texts is a sealed echo chamber in which meanings are reduced to a ceaseless echolalia, a vertical and lateral reverberation from sign to sign of ghostly non-presences emanating from no voice intended by no one, referring to nothing, bombinating in a void. I love that expression at the end, bombinating in a void. So have to think of a way I can use the word bombinating in the future. Uh, so for historians such as Abrams, who was interested in where humankind has been and how it got to where it is, the view, uh, this view of language is, shall we say, less than helpful. Uh, luckily, the deconstructive game disappears when we stop following its rules, just as the vision of hell created by the angel in Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell disappears when the angel, dis uh, when the angel leaves. This is lucky also because um, if the deconstructionist program were accepted as the only program, then, as Abrams points out, the whole discussion between Booth, Abrams, and Miller would seem to be pointless, right? Each person wouldn't know what the other was saying. We wouldn't know how to respond to each other. I think Abrams would maybe accept deconstruction as one of the perspectives that can help increase the depth of our vision of a text as a kind of a method that broadens our view of the possible meaning of a text in the same way that phenomenology can broaden our view of the meaning of present experience. But there's no real strong argument, I think, for taking deconstruction as the fundamental perspective, as some deconstruct deconstructionists seem to take it. Uh, it leaves out just too much, just as phenomenology brackets out things like human learning and history and social relations. Um, okay, so that is a bit about Abrams's view of deconstruction. Next time, I'm going to look at an actual deconstructionist.
J. Hillis Miller. We're going to look at J. Hill, uh, J. Hillis Miller. All right. So thanks for listening and bye for now.